A lot of conversations don't get much past small talk, or they miss the opportunity to make a real human connection. In this episode, how to move past mediocre dialogue and create conversations that matter. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 344. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. And of course, one of the key skill sets that all of us need as leaders is to be able to have conversations that matter. Conversations, dialogue, Deep conversation is such an important part of good leadership, and yet it's one of those skills, and it is a skill that many of us have never received any formal training in, Uh, or if we have, it's just been a little bit here and there, and that's why I'm really glad to welcome our guest today, who is really an expert in this, uh, not only in her work, but also in her practice over the years in her career. I am thrilled to welcome Celeste Headley to the show. She is an award-winning journalist who has appeared on NPR, CNN, BBC, and other international networks. She hosts a daily talk show called On Second Thought for Georgia Public Broadcasting in Atlanta. She's also hosted popular NPR shows such as Tell Me More, Talk of the Nation, All Things Considered, and Weekend Edition. In 2015, she recorded a TED Talk titled 10 Ways to Have Better Conversations that went viral and has been viewed over 10 million times. She's the author of the book, We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter. Celeste, I'm so glad to welcome you to Coaching for Leaders. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, this is such a timely conversation because we are in the midst of a time in business and in society, for better or worse, sadly, I think mostly worse, that there's so much concern and fear I think most of us have on engaging people we don't know well in conversations on almost anything because we fear that we're going to get to a place where we're having an argument or we have people that have different values than we do or don't agree on something. Is this new or is it just something that it seems like it's coming up more and more? How do you, how do you see this in your daily work? Well, I think it's not new, that's for sure. You can go back and trace really dysfunctional conversation, especially about politics for hundreds, if not thousands of years. We don't have those records, but I, I'm willing to bet that they had trouble talking about these things. But there are a few things, Dave, that are new. First of all, I, I don't know of a time when there were quite so many things that had become political, right? It's very difficult at this point to avoid political conversations, at least in the Western world, uh, because we have politicized what we eat. We have politicized the clothes that we wear, the cars we drive, the sports that we watch. It's almost impossible. Even the, the dogs you buy or, or adopt or rescue, like me, has become a political. And so that makes it, A, very difficult to avoid political conversations if that was your strategy. And the other thing I will say is that we definitely have measures, at least in the United States, that show we are more divided than we ever have been. In other words, at this point, by implicit bias tests, there is stronger implicit bias associations 
to connected to political party than in some cases race. And that's that's pretty stunning. You know, back in the days of the 1960s, they did surveys and they found that maybe 8% of people would be unhappy if someone from the other political party married into their family. By about the 1980s or 90s, that was up into the 40s, 40% or so. Now, it's between 80 and 90% wow. of Americans. Yeah. So, it is worse. That's that's for sure. If you f- you have a feeling that it's worse, you're right. And the strategy that we've been using for a very long time, which is to not talk about the things that might get us into arguments, that's that's clearly not working. So it's time to find a new strategy. One of the things that I was really struck by your work and reading your book is the courage you've had to be a leader in this way, to step into some of these uncomfortable conversations. And I'm thinking particularly, Celeste, about the some of the conversations you mentioned in the book that you've aired around the Confederate flag on your show. And you are the descendant of slaves, and you clearly have a strong uh, position on on this, different from the people you've interviewed on your show. And I'm just curious, like, tell me about your mindset when you went into those conversations with people who think really differently than you. You know, my mindset, especially that because it's my job, is I'm trying to get myself out of the way in a certain light. I mean, that's impossible, obviously. But to as much as possible, I'm trying to present to people uh, objective information so they can make up their own minds. And to that end, that's why I disclose and and that that show, and we've had a few of them that have to deal with that because I'm broadcasting from Atlanta. I simply disclose that. I say, listen, I am... Two generations removed from slavery. I obviously have strong opinions. I feel like that's probably understandable, but I'm going to be fair. And if I'm not fair, please feel free to call me out. And in terms of mindset, in order to, I, I think what you're asking me is how I am able to do it, right? Yeah. This was one of the biggest lessons of my life. That, and that is letting go of the burden, and it is a burden, of trying to convince people of something. I don't go into those conversations, whether it's on the radio or off, trying to change anybody's mind. And that really is a huge relief. When you switch the the goal from changing somebody's mind to just learning something from them, it really is like opening a a release valve in in a way. It just kind of relaxes you because the pressure's off. I, I don't have to get all upset and wound up by the things that they say that I don't agree with because that's okay. I, I'm just there to learn from them. And and then there's no there's no conflict. I can ask truly, honestly, curious questions. I try not to leave any conversation without learning from somebody else. So that's that's how I do that. How did you make that shift? You know, when you're a young journalist <laughs> and you are passionate and enthusiastic and you're in it because you care, right, about so many issues. Your bias comes out very clearly. It comes out in the guests that you choose to speak to. It comes out in the questions that you ask them. And then when you finish a report and you present it to an editor, they're going to say, whoa, this is skewed. You have skewed this toward the point of view you agree with. And then you have to go back and say, okay, how do I stop doing that? 
And so, you know, you go through lots of training, you start figuring out how do I approach this fairly so that I'm giving both sides a chance to talk and I'm actually listening to this person rather than, you know, letting them say something just so I can refute it. And this is something we do all the time. People are constantly in their conversations only listening to someone so they can check if they agree with them or not. Mm. It's this constant process of, do I agree with that? Do I agree with that? Is that right? Is that wrong? And you have to stop doing that and, and just listen to them and sort of process what you just heard. And it's a slower process. That's one of the things you find out as a journalist. But it's slower by minutes, right? It's not like, you know, you're making your butter from scratch. Mm. You know, it's slower, but not slow enough to truly impact your work or your or your life. So it is a it's a discipline, and it's it's really hard. I mean, op- human beings are opinionated. We have strong opinions. That's one of the things that's wonderful about us. But it does interfere with our ability to listen to people fairly and with true genuine curiosity. I would imagine that is a, a challenge, and especially what you do, because you're live on the radio uh, yeah. so often. Uh, I, I mean, I know this is a challenge for me, but I'm also imagining for a lot of the leaders in our audience, this is a, a challenge also of, on one hand, wanting to hold of being really present for someone and listening and doing what you and I've just been talking about. And at the same time, coming to the conversation often with some kind of agenda, you know, there's some outcome that we want to have as an organization or as a team or with this person on their development and their coaching. And I I imagine you run into this too, where there's, of course, an agenda and a plan you come to with an interview or a conversation. How do you balance the agenda and some of the outcomes you want with staying in the moment? So, for me, what I have discovered is um, those are two different tasks. And I, I talk a lot, and, and you've read the book, so you know I wrote quite a bit about multitasking. And multitasking interferes with our ability to get things done with high level of quality. And it also interferes with our ability to get things done with any kind of reliability. So when you are both trying to be present and just listening and taking in information, you cannot at the same time be pursuing an agenda. So let's say that you're in a meeting and your your agenda says, now we're going to decide what to do with the holiday party, right? right? So there's two steps. The first is taking in information and discussing and bouncing off ideas. And then the second step is to make decisions. Those are two separate things. In one, you're listening, you're taking in information, you're responding to it, you're asking questions, you're discussing, there's a mutual sharing of information. And after that has occurred, and you've digested it, and you feel like you know what you need to do, then you make your decisions. So there's a, it's really, as you're having a conversation with someone, those are really two separate, it's really two separate parts of the conversation in a way of, of dividing them in a way that uh, is intentional about how you're using your time. Correct. And in fact, uh, you know, since I began doing that, I found I actually saved time. It's a time saver. So, for example, the way that we do it now where we're combining it all, the discussion never ends. Even by the time you're trying to get to the decision-making part, people are still in discussion mode and will continue to argue back and forth and discuss and ponder things. What I have found is when I say, okay, let's discuss this now and then you know, we'll make some decisions. It means we just sort of get that whole 
conversation back and forth that's out of the way, it, it takes a much shorter time. And then we say, okay, so I'm, you know, I'm the boss. Here's what we're going to do. Bam, 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 bam. And then I delegate the tasks. Mm. And it's, it's clear cut. It's very quick. Everyone gets a chance to be heard if they have something to contribute. And then you move on to the decision making and then you're done. And, and frankly, my, even my employees will tell you, none of my meetings take longer than at the very most 30 minutes. Usually much shorter than that. Because I'm not trying to do two things at once. So I'm curious how that looks. I'm just so curious how you structure that. The way that I structure it is I, I, I literally just move very quickly from one thing to, an, to another. You know, the research that I've done into multitasking just shows that there is no benefit in trying to do it. So the first thing is I make everyone leave their cell phones outside the room because you don't want distractions. You need everyone to be focused and present. The second thing is, is that as you move through the agenda, let's say you have five things you need to get through, right? You say, okay. First up is a holiday party. Let's open the floor for suggestions and ideas. Let's, let's, let's do the discussion part, right? And so you do the discussion part. It usually takes maybe a few minutes. And then you say, okay, here's what I heard. Boom, 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 boom. These are the suggestions I got. Anything else? And there's, you know, let's say there's nothing. And then you say, okay, here's what we're going to do. This, 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 this. Let me delegate those tasks. All right, next on the agenda, we're going to talk about what we're going to do for our live remote in Savannah next month. All right, mm. now it's time for discussion. Let's discuss this. Who has ideas? And then you just repeat that pattern over and over and over. And it just sort of goes from one thing to another. It's, it's quite, you know, it's clear. You're not pretending to do both at the same time. That's what I love about it. I mean, it's, it's simple, but it's powerful of... Let me take this time to really be present and just be present. And then let's take this time to figure out what we need to have as an outcome and then be mindful about who's doing what, delegation, all the typical management things we talk about. Exactly. And you know, one important step that I think everyone needs to do is to repeat back. You're taking notes or someone is taking notes for you. Repeat back. Okay, here's what I heard. Give them that one last chance to go back over whatever their idea was, and then you make your, your decisions. You know, one of the biggest problems with meetings, and we all know this, is that just, just the talking never stops, right? People never end the discussion. And it's not necessarily because they don't have a chance to talk. It's just because that's human nature. We're social creatures. We just, some, an idea comes to us and we bring it up and blah, 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 blah. But if you use this format that I'm describing to you, people get into the habit that's the habit they know. Okay, here's the time when we're doing brainstorming. Then we're going to make sure we all heard the same thing. And then we make a decision and we delegate and now we move on. Mm -hmm. And people just get into that, that habit. It's, it's, it's more efficient, but it's more efficient in a, in a way more holistic way where you're really truly, you're not trying to make decisions at the same time that you're listening to ideas and evaluating them. Those are two different tasks. Yeah, indeed. One of the things that really struck me as profound that you teach people is the willingness to say, I don't know. And yeah. I, I, I just, I think that so many of us really struggle with saying those words. Yes. And sometimes, especially in business, it's because we think that's going to show we're not prepared or not working hard enough or not smart enough. We certainly don't want to tell our boss, I don't know. 
But okay, so here's the thing when it boils down to it. We all know that not everybody knows everything. Right. And on a subconscious level, your boss knows that you're not going to have the answer to every question that he or she asks. And therefore, even operating on a subconscious level, if you always have an answer, that leaves your boss wondering which one isn't true. Because you can't know everything, which means sometimes you're pretending to know when you don't. And they have no idea of discerning which one is true and which one isn't. And so saying you know all the time or guessing breaks down trust. That has been shown to be the case in medical situations because doctors have a particularly difficult time saying they don't know. And they tend to make, here's my best guess. But they don't say, here's my best guess. (laughs) They just give their best guess. So what they've trained doctors to do is what I think all of us should learn to do, which is to say, I don't know, but I'll find out. Yeah, I, that, my wife's been a great teacher for me in this way. I I found that to be very true as I was more aware of when people would always have answers to things, uh, family, friends, other colleagues. I realized that that's exactly true. I found that I tended not to go to those people with difficult situations or advice. And, I, and I've come to the conclusion that it's exactly what you said. It's, uh, it's just that that trust level isn't quite there when we don't get the sense that someone is willing to show that they're struggling with something. You're absolutely right. And it's a particular problem now when w- people often get the idea that reading a couple paragraphs of an article on Facebook is the same as knowing. And it is very much not. I have been just stunned. You know, as a journalist, my whole goal is, and I, I can't imagine it's all that different from you as leading a podcast. You try to find the best experts, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're the people who have really studied something, looked at it from all sides. They're going to have the best advice and knowledge and expertise. But we now think that reading a, a, a summary from an article on Facebook, even if it's about something complicated and difficult like health insurance or merit pay for teachers, we're then perfectly willing to not only give an opinion on it, but stand by that opinion, fight for that opinion, argue over that opinion. And that shocks me. What is the point of experts, people who spend their careers focusing on a particular subject, if we're not going to at least listen to them and trust them. I love the quote you cite from Stephen Covey. Most people do not listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to reply. And it really strikes me as true in the Facebook, Twitter, all the things you were just saying of our tendency to just jump in and to defend points and to have our talking points and not really take the time to listen. Yeah. And frankly, I I don't know what is at the bottom of that. I wish I did. I'm not sure anybody has that answer. Why we do that? Because it doesn't make sense, does it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it is—it's so true. And you know that—that that originally comes from Stephen Covey's book, *The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People*, which was written quite some time ago. So that tendency is not new. I think that may just be a human tendency. But I think in the days of Facebook and Twitter uh, and Instagram and Snapchat and keep it going, I, I think it's gotten much worse. Speaking of being able to connect with others, one of the things that really struck me about your work is the research you looked at around 
our ability to empathize with others. And one of the things I really found interesting is the research that shows that the more comfortable you are, the more difficult it becomes to empathize. Yeah, and I think you're referring to one of the most fascinating studies I read in which they had people come in and they would say, okay, I want you to imagine you know, a scale or a ladder of success or, or wealth and Bill Gates is at the top. Uh, where are you below him? And, you know, people would sort of place themselves on the scale below Bill Gates, and then they would test their empathy, their empathic accuracy, which is the ability to sort of detect uh, someone else's emotions that one someone else may be feeling. And their empathic ap- accuracy, after imagining themselves somewhere below Bill Gates, was, was quite good. These very same people... They then put them through an exercise in which they said, okay, now I want you to imagine the most destitute person ever, not just homeless, but really with nothing. And where are you above that person? And then they tested their empathic accuracy again. And their empathic accuracy went down, like really, really far down. And what that tells us is that they didn't, those people did not get any more wealthy Although it is true that the wealthier you are, it, you tend to have less empathy. But even imagining themselves as better than another human being, having more, doing better, being better off, even imagining that made them less empathetic. I mean, that is, that is stunning. I mean, there are some good things that come out of that, right? I mean, yes that's dangerous. It's certainly dangerous if you're quite wealthy. But it does mean that if you're aware of it, you can increase your empathy. All it takes is for you to imagine that other people are better off than you, right? That, or even that you have been in the place of that other destitute person, which is quite easy for me. I've been broke, very, very broke before. So in order to increase my empathy, I just need to remember I was there, I know what that's like. And it actually increases my empathy. And I know this for sure because I've tested it. But it is stunning. And I think we all need to be starting to pay a lot more attention to empathy because it has declined. Empathy is on the decline. It's gone down 40% in the past 30 years. Most of that has occurred since the year 2000. And empathy is not some soft skill that you talk about in your company's annual meeting once a year and then forget about. It's not something that your kindergartners learn watching Mr. Rogers and then forget about as they grow older. Empathy is an extremely important survival skill. It's the, it's part of the equation that makes the human race work. And so if empathy is on the decline, that's a, that's a serious situation for us as human beings. You quoted this wonderful passage from Jane Austen in the book, and I wish I would have grabbed it before our conversation, but it's about conversation and just how that's the best part of life is great conversation. And yet it's, as you've mentioned, it's it's a skill that so many of us have struggled with and with all the societal pressures and all those things. Um, and, and yet it's worth getting better at for that real connection. And I, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm struck by something you said at the beginning you know, setting aside the I'm going to try to change anyone's opinion on this, but I'm going to approach this from a from a place of being curious and wondering. And I don't have to change what I think, but I just want to know where you are and how can I how can I understand more of how you are, approach and think about the world. 
Yeah, and it's really interesting to me. I, I had a discussion with someone who came that came to me after a conference, and she said, you know, I don't even go to my family holidays anymore because I can't talk to this one relative. He, we, he and I don't agree on anything. And we began talking about it. I was obviously trying to encourage her to talk to him. But she said a really interesting thing. She said, you know, sometimes I just wonder what he's thinking. Like, how did he even, why does he even think this is true? Why does he blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, have you asked him? Have you actually sat down? If you're wondering those things, why are you wondering them here to me? Why aren't you going and figuring out by talking to him? And that kind of curiosity, I bet you have, even with somebody who you have no, you feel you have nothing in common with. And I, I'll return to that delusion in just a moment. But <laughs> <laughs> even with someone that you really feel like you're just really far apart, I bet you have questions. I bet there's things you'd like to know about them and about what they believe and why they believe it. And, and you know, the, the, uh, let me, uh, I found the Jane Austen quote you're talking about. It's from her novel Persuasion. And she says, my idea of good company is the company of clever, well-informed people who have a great deal of conversation. That is what I call good company. You are mistaken, said he gently. That is not good company. That is the best. Mm, indeed. But we don't put in the effort to have that best conversation often enough. You mentioned the word delusion a moment ago. What's the delusion that we are subscribing to that maybe is not true? Yeah, it's this delusion that there's people with whom you have nothing in common. And, you know, let me just say that the earth is quite old and the human race is quite old. So I don't care how young or old the other person is. I don't care if they speak your language or don't. I don't care what their politics are. You sharing the earth at the same time as that other person gives you more in common than with them than pretty much any other person who's ever lived, right? We are sharing the same world at the same time. And that means we are having a common experience that billions of human beings don't have. And I play this game often because there's plenty of people I don't agree with on a personal level, plenty. And for whatever reason, I guess it's because I'm a, a well-known journalist. When I'm out in public, people try to argue politics with me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Must be lovely. <laughs> it, is, it is very much not. <laughs> oh, you poor thing. And, I, and I'm always saying I, I'm, I'm off. Like, I'm off work right now. But um, I will play a game. And I'll say, listen, I'm not going to agree with you on this issue, whatever it may be. But... I bet you in five questions or less, I can find something we 100% agree on. Mm. And I have, I have not lost that game yet. And I, I bet you, you can all, you and all those listening can play the same game and win every time. Because there's some things you're going to agree on. Is it dogs? Is it tacos? <laughs> Is it the kind of weather that you enjoy? I mean, I, I bet you, you will find stuff that you agree on. Is it the Star Wars movies? Is it the Indiana Jones movies? You will find something you have in common and it will not take you very long at all. So if you're about to get into an argument with someone or you're finding that you just don't agree, just stop. 
before you get into the argument, just say, look, we really disagree on this and I bet you don't want to argue about it. I don't want to argue about it. That's something we have in common. (laughs) Let me play this game with you. And you will find that you might end up having a, a truly enjoyable conversation with that person. Well, speaking of being off the clock, you and I have something in common, and I'm guessing a lot of the leaders in our community have this in common as well, in that both of us, our work is very much tied to having great conversations and a lot of people listening to those conversations and putting forth the effort and the intention and the energy into listening well and being present, all the things we've been talking about. And then we go home at the end of the day. And we, well, I shouldn't say we, I know we because I've read your book, but me, me for sure, there are days I'm done. And yeah. I think about my wife and our kids. And it's the end of the day. I've had seven or eight hours of really great conversations. And I'm just not able to engage. And I, I know for a lot of our community, that's a challenge too. How do you navigate that? Yeah, I try to be as honest about it as possible. So my son already knows, for example, that if I've had it, I don't make those calls I don't make the calls to order the pizza or to talk to Comcast and tell him our internet is out or any of those calls. I He knows perfectly well that if somebody comes to the door, I'm probably not going to talk to them because I'm, I'm done. But the other thing with him is that I just tell him, I say, I've been, I am worn out talking to people and I need time. So I'm going to disappear. And if you can just you know, handle whatever's going on out here, I, I need some alone time before I bite your head off. And then I go and I I spend that time alone. Now, a big mistake some people make is that alone time, they don't actually spend it alone because time on Facebook and on Twitter is not rest for your brain. So if you're going to go and actually try to recharge, you can't recharge while you're on social media. That's one thing. You need to actually chill out, read a book, watch a movie, whatever it may be, but not something in which you're having to engage in any way and communicate in any way. Give yourself some time. For me, I usually will meditate at least for a portion of that time, but whatever it is you need to do to recharge, truly unplug and step away. One of the things I often ask people is about failure and what they failed at. And you say so much about that in the book that I'm, uh, I'm not going to ask you that question, but I, I am curious, you know, so much about having good conversation and connecting with people is about how you change your thinking on things. And I think for all of us as leaders, being able to be influenced and to change our mind on things. And I'm, I'm curious, where have you changed your mind on something in the last four or five years? Oh my gosh, so many things. I mean, I think the whole process of writing this book has been a change of mind because I am a professional conversationalist. I mean, that's literally what I do as a profession. And this book actually came out of me realizing that I wasn't great at it. And I certainly wasn't as good at it as I thought. You know, and it's really interesting as I looked into it, it turns out that we all have a a really strong tendency to overestimate our own conversational skills and I was one of them. So it was a it was kind of un, it, it was akin to unplugging from the matrix, right? So sort of step back and go, "Whoa, what I what the the world I've been imagining in my head was not the truth. That's not what was really happening." 
and and you know that really that was an eye opener and the other one was after i read that study that came out of harvard in 2014 boy was that an eye opener for me personally because in it they found that talking about yourself what they call self disclosure actually activates the same pleasure centers in the brain as sex and heroin and that was an eye opener for me because it meant that all those conversations that i really enjoyed that felt fantastic to me that pleasure may not have been shared that may have just been me talking about myself so much that I was constantly activating my own pleasure center and feeling great where the other person wasn't sharing that. So I really had to change my mind about what I chose to talk about. But even more than that, I had to start really becoming aware of the other person at all times. Celeste, is is such powerful words you've shared with us. Um, I'm I know one of the things our audience is always looking for, something they can take away and use that day. And I know that so many of us are going to approach conversations today thinking differently based on what you've said. So I hope folks will go. We're going to link to not only your TED Talk that went viral, but I know you have a couple of other TED Talks as well. I'm going to link to all those in the notes. And of course, I'd certainly suggest folks check out the book, We Need to Talk how to have conversations that matter. Celeste, thank you so much for the work you do and for being not only a great teacher of great conversations, but also I just appreciate how much you share with what you've struggled with and just being so real about the learning process that goes with it. I really appreciate that. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for talking with me. Lots of episodes in the past related to conversations. In fact, it is a topic area on the Coaching for Leaders podcast library. When you go online, you can hit the conversations button. If you do hear some of the past episodes, you will track down. One of them is episode 198, How to Know What to Ask. I had Andrew Warner of Mixergy on that episode, and Andrew and I talked about what are some of the tactical things you can do within conversations in order to ask the right questions and pay attention to what someone's saying in order to encourage, influence, and sometimes even uh, directly force the conversation to get a bit more personal. So you really do have a conversation that matters. Andrew has some wonderful thinking on that. That's episode 198. Also, I mentioned this episode as a recommendation on last week's show. It came up again this week. You may recall Celeste mentioning that our ability to become empathetic tends to change when we become more comfortable, as in it goes down. That was also one of the key findings in Dacher Keltner's research looking at power. He's out of Berkeley, and we talked back on episode 254 on how to use power for good and not evil. There are a lot of dynamics of power that come out in conversations, and we talk through a lot of them in episode 254. So if that's of interest to you, go check that one out. Also, I couldn't possibly leave you without mentioning episode 271, How to Increase Your Conversational Intelligence. Judith Glazer was on the show, and she is one of the leading voices out there on how to have great conversations and how to improve your conversational intelligence. So if that is 
uh, of interest to you, and today's conversation has got you thinking about ways to do that, uh, episode 271 is a wonderful way to continue that journey along being a better conversationalist. You can track down all of those past episodes by going to coachingforleaders.com slash podcast. That'll open up the full library. If you are not yet a member, you'll want to become a member. Just go over to the coachingforleaders.com website. You can activate your free membership. There's a ton of things you're going to get access to as part of that membership. All of the past episodes sorted by topic. And also one of the new resources that I've been providing over the last, uh, almost last six months now, is I'm highlighting all of the things that I think are most important, most relevant out of the books that I'm reading. And Celeste's book is no different. As I went through and read the book, I highlighted on my Kindle all of the things that I think thought were most important. It's where many of the questions came out of, of today's conversation. If you would like access to all those book notes, not only from her book, but all of the notes from the books that have been featured on the show over the last seven, eight months, uh, just activate your free membership. That is a great way to get access to that because one of the buttons in your free membership library says book notes. They're all listed right there. You can download all of those PDFs. So thanks in advance if you decide to join our community online and access all of those resources, including the book notes. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Cameron Harold to the show. He's going to be here to teach us the lessons from his book that just came out called Vivid Vision. I get questions often from the leaders in our audience. How do I actually articulate a vision for my team? in order to lead effectively. We're going to talk about that in detail next week. If you are thinking about creating a vision in the midst of it or want to get better at it, don't miss next week's conversation. Have a great week and see you next week to talk more on visions. Take care.